0: So have you ever got a song in your head and you can't get it out of your head and it just goes over and over and over and you really want to get it out of your head? Maybe a song like this. Do you know the way to San Jose? Nice. I'm so proud. I wanted somebody to do the bum, 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 bum. Great job, choir. I'm so thankful. That song came out this month, 49 years ago in 1968. It was written by Hal Davis and Burt Bacharach, which is a great name to say out loud, and it was a big hit for Dionne Warwick. It's a song about somebody who goes to L.A. to try to make it big, but they don't make it big, and so they're on their way home to their hometown of San Jose. The funny thing about this is a few years ago, Dionne Warwick was in an interview, and, and they were asking her about some of her songs, and she said that she initially didn't want to sing the song about San Jose because she thought it was dumb. Now, with all fairness to Hal and, and Bert, she was kind of right. You know, I mean, the San Jose song, is a, it's a little goofy. Uh, in that same interview, uh, they asked her about some of her other songs, and she said there was another one of her songs that she thought was kind of dumb. Uh, this song was not written by Hal and Bert. It was written by Robin and Maurice and Barry, the Gibb Boys, otherwise known as the Bee Gees. Now, Barry sang back up on this song. So what was that hit song that Dionne Warwick thought was kind of dumb? I'm really sorry to do this to you. Why do you have to be a heartbreaker? When <laughs> I was being what you want me to be. I mean, you only have so many times do an impersonation of Barry Gibbs. You have to take advantage of it, you know, when you can. So I thought I would. Or maybe that was one of those times that I should not have taken advantage of it. Not sure. Heartbreaker was the song, another big hit for her. So bless her heart. I mean, two songs that she thought was dumb made her a lot of money. So, I mean, I guess the dumb music is good. At the very beginning of life on earth, there was a heartbreaker. Matter of fact, there were two heartbreakers. And whose heart did they break? Well, they broke the heart of the one who magnificently created them. They broke the heart of the one who lavishly gave them a paradise to live in. They broke the heart of the one who lovingly gave them every good thing they would need. And how did they break his heart? How did they break the heart of their creator? Well, they broke his heart by losing their way. Not their way to San Jose, but losing their way to paradise. Losing their way towards God. And they got lost on purpose. Through the lies of the enemy, through the foolishness of their own minds, through the arrogance of their own hearts, they believed, they were convinced that God was trying to to keep them away from wisdom and pleasure. And so they decided to no longer do what God wanted them to do. They decided to quit doing what God wanted them to do. They decided to quit being what God wanted them to be. They decided to go their own way. And going their own way ended up being a a dead end. A dead end that left them full of guilt and shame and fear. The reality is, is their rebellion also gave them broken hearts. Their hearts were broken and they were wondering, really desperately wondering, is there any way we can make this thing right? But there wasn't. There wasn't a way for them to make it right. There wasn't a way for them to make it right. But there was a way. A way was made to make things right. And what was that way? And what does that way have to do with you right now? Well, let's find out. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. The scripture says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at verses 1 through 19, and I've been referring to our garden characters as the man and the woman because that's what the verses referred to them as, the man and the woman. But today, we switch gears and, and we'll refer to them by the, the names they would have on their name tags, you know, Adam and Eve. Now, actually, their name tags, their first name tags, would have said Adam and woman because that's what Adam called her initially, called her woman. Now, don't get the wrong idea. That doesn't mean that Adam was walking around the garden going, Woman, bring me some veggie chips. woman. Bring me a fruit smoothie. Woman, go get that cat out of my recliner. That's not what was happening in the garden. Nor is it likely that Adam saw the woman for the first time and said, Whoa, man, God, this one's a lot prettier than all that other stuff that you made. That's probably not what happened. No, the word woman here just means out of man. That's all it really means. You may hear me in a wedding ceremony say the following. To create the woman for the man, God took a rib from the man's side, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, from under his arm to be protected by him, and from his heart to be loved by him. That's the picture that we have at the very beginning of creation. And so the beautiful and magnificently created companion known as woman became Eve. Her name was changed. Eve means life giver or life producer. Now, when God created the man and the woman, he immediately gave them a command to be fruitful and multiply. So before she was called Eve, she was already gonna be a life giver and a life producer. She was already going to bear children. So why change her name? Well, something amazing had just happened. So in part, her, her name change is probably connected to that. See, the first time the gospel was preached was not by Peter in Acts chapter 2. The first time the gospel was preached was in the garden. And who was the preacher? The preacher was the Lord God himself. God had been dishonored. He had been disobeyed. He had been rejected. He had been mocked. But he did not reject them in return. He chased after them. He pursued them with grace and mercy and forgiveness. He looked at them and, and gave them a guaranteed rescue plan from sin. But it wasn't just a rescue plan for them. It was a rescue plan for me. And it was a rescue plan for you. God cursed Satan. He cursed the enemy. And in the curse, he preached the first gospel sermon ever. And it went like this. Genesis 3:15, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The enemy and all who follow after him are promised the kind of death that is filled with emotional and physical and spiritual consequences that never go away. They never end. And none of them are good. But for the seed and the one that follow after him, death will only bruise them. Death will only sting them. So... (laughs) Who's the seed? Who's the seed that has the power over death? Well, the seed is risen. The seed is risen indeed. So the woman, she was going to bear children, but she wasn't just going to have babies So we're just going to have babies and and have them out on the earth and multiply humans on the earth. Actually, from her family tree, so to speak, the one was going to be born that was going to rescue and redeem and bring everlasting life. Adam heard that. In the middle of this curse, Adam heard the gospel, and he believed He didn't know what it all meant. He couldn't do the math. He didn't know the how or the when or the why, what the circumstances were going to be around the seed and when the seed was coming or how the seed was going to say. He didn't know, but he heard the gospel and he believed. And because the the woman doesn't seem to be angry about having to get a new driver's license with a new name, we assume from the text that, that she seemed to be pretty excited about this great news too. So Adam turned to his bride, he smiled, and he said, you know what, from now on, I'm going to call you Eve, because from you, the one who's going to bring life and hope and salvation is coming. And she smiled back at him, because her fear and her guilt and her shame, they were starting to grow dim. Because of the light of this glory and this grace and this fantastic news that God was going to rescue. So, do you need a new name today? Have you believed in God's message of rescue? Have you truly turned your heart to Jesus? Or are you silently yet boldly living in in fear and shame and guilt? Or are you silently but boldly living in arrogance or apathy toward God? Today may be your day of salvation. Today may be the day that your inheritance changes. Today may be the inheritance that that you have now to be separated from God forever, to be separated from all that is good and holy and happy. That might change. And your new inheritance might be that you have life forever that death will only sting and then you will have a satisfying eternity to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship and enjoy him, satisfied forever. Maybe today is that day in your life. The woman has a new name. Her, Her husband gave her a new name, Eve. What happened after that? Listen to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Summer in college, one summer in college, I uh, worked for the recreation department back in my hometown and some of the men from my home church would have pickup basketball games during the week down at the church gym and during the summers they'd let some of us young guys come up there and play with them. So one day I had to work late and I didn't have time to go home and get my clothes to change into play so I decided to play in my work clothes and I borrowed a pair of red and black Air Jordans from my buddy Brent. Now, these shoes were just a little bit smaller than my normal size. So we played like, I don't know, two or three hours of basketball that night. And the next morning, my feet were killing me. The morning after that, I had this huge blister on one of my big toes. A few mornings after that, I lost the nail on that big toe. Man, that hurt. And initially, I thought I could help myself by trying to leave the pain of the infection with some matches and a paperclip outside the office. It was a really bad idea. And it never turned out good. And I've already told you more than you wanted to know, sorry. <laughs> Those shoes were great for the game. I mean, they gave me everything I needed to play basketball that night. But ultimately, because they were just a little off in size, they brought pain. After the man and the woman sinned, they decided to make themselves some clothes. Some clothes out of fig leaves. The only problem was is those clothes didn't fit. They didn't fit physically because they were grown up people and they needed more than eco-friendly diapers to wear around in the garden. And, and it didn't fit them spiritually either because they were trying to cover up what they had done. They were trying to hide from the creator of the universe. How do you do that? You you don't. So let me just say, that should terrify you. You can't hide from God. That should terrify us. But it's not just terrifying news, it's terrific news. Because the same God, the creator God of the universe, he desires, he delights to rescue and save and redeem you and to pursue you, chase after you with goodness and loving kindness all the days of your life. That's who he is. So what does God do with Adam and Eve and their eco-diapers? Well, does he say, oh, y'all, y'all don't need those things. You should have never put that on. Don't worry about it. No, he didn't say that. They should have been ashamed. They, they should have tried to cover their sins, so to speak. They, they should have been convicted over what they have done. But he did not ban clothes He just gives them clothes that fit. He gives them clothes that fit physically because they're bigger people and and the clothes he gave them were, were bigger. They covered more. They were stronger than just some leaves. And he gave them clothes that fit spiritually because some kind of sacrifice had to be made in order for him to give them those clothes. Some kind of sacrifice from God with his creatures had to be made. And so every single time, that Adam and Eve were going to feel those clothes next to their skin. They were going to remember they couldn't cover their sin. And they could not save themselves. Paul told the church at Rome in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You see, sin is, is not like you know, just hanging out on the beach and getting sunburned. The, the consequences of sin are, are not just getting burned at the beach. The, the consequences of sin are like being at the beach and being way out in the water, past the markers, past where the lifeguards can get to you. And you're going under, you're going down, and you cannot save yourself. You are desperately in need of being rescued. You are desperately in need of being saved. That's the consequences of sin. That's how serious our sin really is. David Guzik says this, There are only two religions. There is the religion of fig leaves, and there is the religion of God's perfect provision. Adam and Eve were clothed in a garment that was purchased with the life of another. So, which religion are you following today? The fig leaves of your shame and guilt? The fig leaves of your good deeds? Or are you following the religion that's connected to God's perfect provision? Are you following the religion? Are you wearing the garments that were purchased for you with the life of another? And who is this other? Who is this perfect provision from God? The seed. The seed is risen. The seed is risen indeed. So Eve has a new name and now both of them have real Easter clothes. So what happens next? Listen to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So who's this us that God refers to here? Well it's one of the first pictures we have of the the glorious reality known as the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Bible is not in the Bible either. So, so the word itself is not what's necessary because throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we have this unbelievable proof and evidence of the importance of the Trinity. So what is the Trinity? Well, the Trinity is that God eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each one of those persons is fully God, and yet God is still one. Now, you might be thinking, the math doesn't work on that one, buddy. One plus one plus one is three, not one, all right? If you need a little bit of math, go with multiplication. One times one times one equals one. That's three ones, and they all equal one. But the Trinity is not about math, is it? The Trinity is about undeniable, tangible, fact-based, satisfying faith. See, the Trinity is this amazing reality that the ruler of the universe is not just the ruler of the universe, but the ruler of the universe can come to earth and rescue and save you. And the same ruler of the universe can strategically and eternally be a part of your hearts and your minds and your emotions and your attitudes all the time. And none of these things that he does in any way ever diminishes his power, his mercy, his grace, his love, his authority, even a billionth of a millimeter. See, that, that's amazing truth about who God is. So if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, man, enjoy and embrace the stunning reality of the Trinity in your life. Do not let it be some theological word. Let it be the source of your hope and your strength every day. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then we would graciously proclaim to you that Christianity is not a fig leaf religion. The Lord God Is stronger The Lord God is greater The Lord God is higher than any other He is healer He is awesome in power He is in three persons And yet he is one He is the blessed trinity And we would love for you to know our God That's who he is In rebelliously eating from the tree Adam and Eve suddenly knew something they didn't need to know They knew evil well, how did they suddenly know evil? Did they take a bite of the fruit, and this magic fruit, and, and they suddenly had some x-ray, you know, goggles, and they could suddenly see what was good and what was evil? No, it wasn't magic. You see, they had an opportunity to affirm God, to honor God, to say, no, we're, we're not going to believe the lie. We're going to believe in our creator. We're going to believe in the one who loves us. But they didn't do that. They rejected him, and they chose to think, you know what, I bet we could be our own little gods if we just took that fruit. Now, it wasn't magic fruit. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says this. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In other words, in a sense... They already knew evil before they even had the fruit in their hands. See, that, that evil was already going on in their minds and their hearts, and the, and the bite was almost just like the exclamation point on what was already happening in their minds and their hearts. So with all of that, what does God mean that they could now see in the same way as the Trinity can see? Well, that's a question that we're going to try to answer with one of the greatest realities in the universe, and that is the Trinity. So trying to answer that in human terms is not exactly a small thing. So we're just going to kind of give us a nudge, hopefully, in the right direction. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2 says this. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. See, in eating the fruit, Adam and Eve, they, they thought that what they were doing was right. That never happens in our lives, Right. We don't ever sin while thinking that we're doing the right thing, right? Now we do. So they looked at something that was actually evil, and they said, you know what? I think this might be good. I think it's okay to engage with this. Ray Steadman says this, that is the formula for anarchy. It means we are relating and judging everything by the way it appears to us. This is the way God does it, for he is the measure of all things, but it is wrong for man. See, they saw something evil and they said, hey, I bet this is good, I think this is okay, I bet we're gonna get pleasure and wisdom out of this, but they were wrong. But then there's a bigger problem. See, there's another tree. There's a tree of the the knowledge of good and evil and there's the the tree of life, which we might think of as kind of like a a fountain of youth tree. It It was life, eternal life connected to that tree. Stebna goes on to say this. God says, what if man doomed now to guilt, shame, limitation, and loss should now reach forth his hand and take and eat of the tree of life and live forever? What happens if that happens? He goes on. It would mean that man would never physically die but would go on in his evil condition forever. Someone once noted that every single person who has ever existed will live forever and have eternal life. Everybody. You will either live forever as a friend of God or you will live forever as an enemy of God. So your forever matters. What you believe today matters. Who you put your confidence and faith and trust in today matters. There's a big problem now. They are going to rot away in their shame and their guilt and their fear. I mean, rot away but never die. So it's going to be rotten all the time, but they're never going to die. So what happens next? Listen to verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Someone might say, oh, yep, there's the God I've heard about, this mean old ogre, this tyrant, this dictator that demands everything is his way. He won't even give a little bit of grace on some stolen fruit. They say, and then the monster, oh, we got it now. This this monster, he's going to put some samurai angels out by the gate, and they're going to be swinging their swords all the time, 24 hours a day, so that they can't get back in. What kind of God is that? Why would I want to know that God? That's not what's happening at all. See, what's really happening is this. God looks at Adam and Eve, and he says, I love you. And this perfect place that I made for you, it's not safe for you anymore. You're not safe there. I I need to get you out. I need to protect you. I need to love you. I need to provide for you different. It's dangerous now there for you. Because of God? No, because of their sin and their rebellion. And so that's exactly what God does. He gets them out of there. He rescues them even temporarily and and He looks after them and He protects them. Even in their work, He's keeping them safe. I love what Lig Duncan writes about the first three chapters of the Bible. In the first three chapters we learn of the world that God made and the mess that we made and the rest of the Bible is about how God is going to clean that up for his own glory and our own good. I love that. First three, we, we get the picture. Here's what God created. Here how, here's how we messed it up. And then the rest of the Bible, is the story drawing us to what God's doing to try to clean it up. So how did God clean it up? How did God clean up this, this huge, eternal, everlasting mess of sin? Well, he cleaned it up through the seed, from the manger, really from the garden to the manger, to the cross, to the empty tomb. God rescued us through the seed. The seed is risen. The seed is risen indeed. I love how Keith Getty and Stuart Townend puts it. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought and rescued and saved and redeemed and covered with the precious blood of Christ. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And the people of God said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I graciously and boldly acknowledge that there is no one outside of this room we should ever put our hope in. And God, I graciously and boldly acknowledge there is no person in this room that we should ever put our hope in. There is no human who can rescue us. There's no human who can care for our guilt and our shame and our death. But the seed, the seed can. Your son the King, the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah. He sacrificed that we might be rescued. He died so that we would not drown and go under the pressure and the ocean of sin. And so we ask, would you give us the ability through your spirit to know that that is our hope. He is our hope. And we will not find hope in our spouse. We will not find hope in our kids. We will not find hope in our jobs. We will not find hope in our teams or our presidents or kings or queens or anybody. It's only in Jesus. It's only in Jesus. We aren't convinced, God. We're not. So please, For the sake of our souls, for the sake of our joy, for the sake of our families and our our country and our nation and the world, would you convince us that Jesus is everything he says he is? And so much more. He is risen. Let us bank our lives on that. In his good name we pray. Amen.